Good morning, College Park. Today's passage will come from Romans 3, 9 through 20. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is underneath their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we have all... I'm sorry. Now we all know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, today we bring to close the uh, first section of our study in the book of Romans. We began in the month of January looking at this great book, and we began by seeing the way in which God has revealed his righteousness, and that was the title of this first subsection, the revealing of God's righteousness. And it really shows up primarily in uh, chapter 1 and verse 17, and here's the text that identifies it. It says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, there's the series title, from faith to faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what we have seen is the way in which Paul demonstrates through chapters 1, 2, and 3 that God has revealed his righteousness and then sets in contrast our righteousness, which is a dark and dismal story. We saw in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way to where we are today, that our righteousness doesn't um, compare to God's righteousness at all. In fact, it's a failed righteousness. We saw the problem of unbelief in the first week. Then uh, after that, we looked at how that unbelief expressed itself in the pagan world through all sorts of exchanges of God's glory. The, the summit of the exchange of that exchange is impurity, sexuality, impurity, and then also homosexuality. We saw how the exchange of God's glory for things that aren't reflective of his glory are just symptomatic of our plight as human beings. The text goes on and explains that um, it's not only people who are outside of the religious realm that are in trouble, but also people who are inside the religious realm, and that specifically being Jews, um, Jews that would count on the law or their circumcision. Paul says they also are guilty because you can't manufacture your righteousness by good things that you do, even if they are spiritual things. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing the way in which God, which God through the book of Romans by virtue of what the Apostle Paul has written, is unpacking our human depravity. Then last week we talked about the matter of the unfairness of God. We heard some objections that Paul um, anticipated being given, and we tried to help you understand this, this lens of fairness, this fairness doctrine that we bring to the text, which at one level is appropriate, but at another level really skews things in terms of how we understand both ourselves and the relationship with our Creator. Today we're going to look at another category, uh, a category that is equally as important as that is the fairness issue, 
in terms of how you see the Bible, how you see yourself, how you see God, and for that matter, how you see the world. And then next week, we're going to jump into the next uh, subsection, which is the righteousness that saves by grace. And we're going to see um, the unfolding drama of God's redemption, and specifically in the life of Abraham. So we're closing up this fairly negative, heavy, kind of downer section and moving into the section that talks about righteousness that saves by grace. And today is really a summary in Paul's argument of what we have looked at for the last eight weeks or so. You could summarize Paul's argument here with a short little phrase. It is his proposition for what's happening in this text, and for that matter, really all of chapter 1, 2, and 3, and it is this, that we are all under sin. Would you say that with me? All under sin. That lens, church, is a really important lens for you to see yourself, relationships, and for you to be able to see the world. If I could help you today, it would be that you would get what it means that we are all under sin. And then that framework or that lens would then affect what you see around you, how you conduct yourself in marriage, how you parent, what you see in the world. This, this starting point of that we're all under sin is a really, really big deal. And it informs a great deal of what follows in, in, the, in the book of Romans. Look at verse 9. Paul says, what then are Jews better off? Not, no, not at all. Why does he say that? He says that because he's just refuted the argument that Jewishness doesn't matter at all. I mean, if, if you heard um, two weeks ago the, the treatment about Jewishness, you'd think, well, Jewishness doesn't matter. And then Paul says, well, in chapter 3 and verse 1, that Jewishness does matter. Verse 2, he says, much in every way it matters. And then he anticipates another objection or another rhetorical question. So are the Jews then better off? And he says, no, not at all. And, and what he's trying to do here is establish something that's important, which is this, that the Jews were given the promises of God, but that didn't mean that they were immune from judgment. Just because they've been treated kindly, just because God has been merciful to them, doesn't mean that they are thereby immune from coming judgment and accountability. The book of Amos puts it this way. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. There's the promise to the Jewish people. And then here's the accountability. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So you see how those two things go together. That's what Paul is identifying here in verse 9. In verse 10, he says, as it is written. And what Paul's going to do is use six different Old Testament texts to support the premise that is found in verse 9, where he says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That little phrase, under sin, is the focal point of what we're going to talk about today. This term will become important for our understanding of the rest of the book of Romans. It will become important as we understand what the gospel is, that if you get this category, it's the beginning point of where the gospel goes from. And as Paul talks about the power of God in salvation, why is the power of God in salvation so powerful? It is because of the problem of this category of all under sin. So what does this idea of under sin mean? Let me give you a few cross-references. Take your Bible. Go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 21. When we get to chapter 5 and 6, Paul really unpacks the um, specifics as to what the problem of sin really is. 
The first problem of sin, or what it means to be under sin, is that sin has a power that is described as reigning. So there's, there's something about sin that is powerful. Verse 21 of Romans 5 says, So that as sin reigned in death, so notice its position, it reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. So you'll, you'll see some positive things in these cross-references that I'm going to give you, but those positive things are conditioned on the negative thing, which is being all under sin. In other words, you don't really understand the beauty of the gospel unless you get the the dark depravity of what it means that we're all under sin. So sin is described as reigning. Uh, chapter 6 of Romans in verse 6, sin not only reigns, but it also enslaves people. The text says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, if Paul says no longer enslaved to sin, it assumes that at one time we were enslaved to sin. And that's the condition of what it means to be under sin. It means that we are enslaved to sin, that it has this power over us. It means that apart from Christ, the only thing that we can really do is sin and that we are held captive by it. Look at verse 12. Not only does it reign um, corporately, but it reigns individually and it reigns in our bodies, sin does. Meaning that sin causes us to do the things that we shouldn't do. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So sin has a reigning ability in that it causes people to do the wrong things that they do. So the actions are not the only problem. Those actions spring from a theological premise or a foundational reality of that's who we are. Our condition is under sin. And then look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Sin not only reigns, not only enslaves, but it also dominates. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Again, there's a positive element here that we'll, we'll look at sometime this fall of the idea of sin no longer having this dominion. But the fact is, is that we start from a standpoint of sin having dominion over us. So you can take all of this and summarize it then under this, this banner of being under sin. Or you could think of it that all of us are natural born sinners. You don't sin and then become a sinner. You are a sinner. Got this wrong. Now, that was right. What I was going to say was wrong. I stopped myself before I got it wrong. This is really important to get this right. So get it right, Mark. Here it is. So you sin because you are a sinner. That's right. You don't become a sinner because you sin. Got it. All right, let's move on. So, that's really complicated. It's not that hard. Look at verse 17 of Romans 6. Verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, became obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Notice in that text that everyone is a slave. It's just a matter of whether or not you're a slave to sin or whether or not you're a slave to righteousness. So there's two kinds of people in the world, people who are slaves to sin and those who are slaves to God's righteousness. So this category is very, very foundational and very important. And it means a number of things. It means, first, that the problem with our humanity is not just what we do. The problem with our humanity is who we are. That children are born into the world as natural-born sinners. Kids, it's really important for you to know. 
The reason your mom and dad have rules, the reason why you set guidelines is because you are wicked, wicked, wicked. That's why. And you're just like your parents, right? And if your parents let you do whatever you wanted to do, you'd eat marshmallows for breakfast, you'd set fire in the living room and think it's cool, you'd drive the car when you weren't supposed to, you'd do all sorts of really fun things and be really, really dangerous. You see, the reality is is that children are natural-born sinners. We don't become sinners by sinning. We are born that way. And the problem is not just the things that we do. It is fundamentally who we are. The second thing about this condition is that sin has a stranglehold on humanity, and the Bible calls that slavery. That that sin has a hold on our culture, on our world, and on us as human beings, and deliverance in the gospel means that a greater power has taken hold of the human heart. And you've got to see the world like this, because you're entering... In every relationship and in every scenario that you're in, you're entering into a sin-infected world. A world is lost. And yet we have the message, the beautiful message of the gospel. So it ought not surprise us when the world acts in a sinful way. It ought not surprise us when we have to deal with sinful things in our families, in our homes. It ought just, just, just be unbelievably glorious when sin doesn't happen. I mean, the the category that the Bible gives us here is that we are hopelessly lost sinners and anything good that happens is only because of God's grace. So if you have a family meal and the food is good and the kids are all sitting around, they're listening, you have Bible devotional time that lasts eight hours, you know, and everyone's engaged, kind of glory comes down. Well, just let me back it up. If they just simply like one another and are kind to each other... You ought to just look at each other, husband and wife, and just go, hallelujah, this is a miracle, right? If you can travel from home to church and no one got mad at anybody, you found all the socks, you came here, everyone was in a good, happy mood, that is a miracle, right? The fact of the matter is, friends, we live in a very broken world, we're broken people, so it ought not surprise us when broken things happen. Sort of like being a fireman. Someone says, how's your job going? Oh, good, it's just so hot all the time. It's like, that's... That's what you do, man. It's supposed to be hot, right? So you're lost people who've experienced the gospel. We live in a sinful, cursed world, a sin-cursed world. Therefore, our experience of brokenness, that's who we are. That is what our world is. That's the message that the gospel has meant to trans, the message of the gospel is meant to transform the world. So for Paul and the message of the entire Bible, the starting point is this category of under sin. Under sin. If you understand this, this, this changes a great deal. Now let's, let's apply this and see how Paul works out this definition. He next talks about the effects and how it ruins relationships. And the way in which sin ruins three levels of relationships. It ruins our relationship with God. It ruins our relationships with others. And it ruins our relationship in culture and in society. Let me show you how Paul does this. Verse 10. Notice that there are five different times that Paul uses this little phrase of not one or no one. He says, not one is righteous or none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Not even one. So what's the point? 
The point is, nobody's righteous. That's the point. And Paul goes through this five times in order to make clear that our rebellion is not only universal in its scope, it is personal in how it's been applied. There's no single person who's righteous. No one. That's Paul's point. Now, he connects, I think, the message in verses 10 to 12 here with what he has already said in verses 18 to 28 in chapter 1. Let me show you this. In the sermon manuscript, there's a chart. Let me break it down for you here on the screen. Paul talks about unrighteousness, and in verse 10 he says, No, none is righteous, no, not one. And says the same thing in chapter 1 and verse 18, where the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. So Paul is concluding his argument here about the unrighteousness, the ungodliness of mankind. When it comes to our failure to glorify God, that shows up in verse 11. As no one understands, no one seeks for God. Shows up in verse 21 of chapter 1, as they did not honor Him as God. So he's saying the same thing. As well, this issue of idolatry shows up. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. That means they've turned aside from God. In verse 22 of chapter 1, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So Paul's identifying that we express our sinfulness in our idolatry. We also express it by virtue of our corruption. Verse 12 of chapter 3, together they have become worthless. In chapter 1 and verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Corruption. And finally, there's an element of wicked deeds. Verse 12, no one does good, not even one. Verse 28, chapter 1, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So these wicked deeds flow out of their fundamental unrighteousness. So all that to say what Paul is doing here is summarizing or concluding what he's already talked about in chapter 1, verse 18 through 28. And here is identifying the not only universality of the fallenness of mankind, but very specifically how we are individual partakers in that fallen reality. He says none is righteous in verse 10. What does it mean? It means no one stands before God in a spiritually right condition, that every single person is guilty. We enter the world guilty. No one understands. Our primary failure in terms of our spirituality is hostility towards God, and our natural orientation is toward not seeking God. That's what verse 11 says. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And so this is the starting point. Which means that when you came to faith in Christ, you certainly were seeking God, weren't you? But you need to know the Bible in other parts tells us that even that ability to seek after God is something that God had to help you with and give you. So you sought Him, absolutely, but you didn't do it alone. That's the point. That in our natural condition, we would never seek after God. If left to ourselves, humanity would never pursue a relationship with their Creator. It is God's great mercy that He told us what He is like, and mercy that He sent Christ, and mercy that He empowers faith and calls us His children. Without Him, we would strut our way to a Christless eternity, being fully convinced we were justified in doing so. All have turned aside. Our depravity expresses itself by turning away from God and turning towards other objects of affection and worship. They have become worthless. The word means corrupt. It means that which is defiled or 
we're not who God meant us to be. This is, this is something important. It means that human beings, when we pursue a life outside of robust worship of our Creator, that we're pursuing a life that isn't even fully human. Or as William Barclay said, human nature without Christ is a soured and useless thing. And then finally, no one does good. Meaning that these evil deeds, they are a big deal, but these evil deeds come out of a foundational spiritual issue. And that is this category of being under sin. So the first problem is our relationship with God. And then secondly, we have a problem with our relationship with people. And verses 14 and 15, or rather 13 and 14, identify that the way in which we express the ruining of our relationships with other people is with how we talk to them. To be under sin means that we express our sinfulness most vividly by virtue of what we say. Just think of how many relationships have been hurt so deeply because of what's come out of our mouths. Paul begins in verse 13 by connecting the throat, which he sees as the source of the words that come out. He connects it to an open grave. An open grave. There's nothing attractive or cute or sweet about an open grave. It's it's meant to be a metaphor that creates the revulsion of what happens when you have an open grave. What happens when you have an open grave? Smells. Remember, as a kid, we um, came back after a three-week uh, camping vacation, and apparently at about day five or six, our refrigerator in our house went down. And um, the, my parents had a bunch of meat that was stored in the, um, in the freezer, and I remember walking in the house going, what is that smell? Open up the refrigerator, and oh, there it is, right? I mean, there is... There's something just revolting and disgusting about decaying material. And Paul says that their throat is an open grave. Lots, a lot of things that come out of the mouth lead to decay. Verse 13, they use their tongues to deceive. The Greek word here means beguiling. And it has the idea both of a direct lie or an innuendo. The kind of thing where not only do you either know someone's not telling you the truth, that's one level of it, but another, it's just the fact that all throughout life we have to continually wonder about, are they, what, are they, what are they really saying? You ever had that? Someone sends you a text and you're like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Or... Maybe you're having a discussion via text, which is generally not a good idea, and you're like, that's, that's, that, oh, they put a smiley face behind it, now I get it. That's, you know, so we always have to explain what's going on with our words. You know why? Because our mouth is an open grave and our tongues are filled with beguiling words. Tim Keller defines the difference between gossip and flattery as this. Gossip is what You'd say behind someone's back, but you'd never say to their face. Whereas flattery is what you say to their face that you'd never say behind their back. 
And the linkage between gossip and flattery is the beguilement that's connected with tongues that deceive. He then says, the venom of asps is under their their lips. The idea is a picture of poison lurking just behind our lips, as almost as if at any moment we would be ready to spew out poison. I mean, you know this is true, don't you? This fits with what you've experienced. How many things have you said that wish, that wish you could take back? How many things have been said to you that it may have been 10, 15 years ago, but the fact of the matter is you still remember what was said and it feels like it was yesterday. And then finally, life is full of conflict. It says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, meaning life is full of relational conflict. The the mouth is full of overflowing sinful things. And the reason is, is because mankind is under sin. Our relationship with God and our relationship with other people is ruined and affected by this category of under sin. It is just, it's a miracle that we ever get along or that we all don't just continually hurt one another. I mean, some of you have been married 40 years. How many of you have been married 40 years or more? Just your hands. How about 50 years or more? You know? I mean, often when someone is married 50 years or more, we celebrate that, we clap. You know why we clap? Because we can't believe you made it, right? (laughs) It's like, wow! How'd you do that, right? You know why? Because marriage is hard work. Trying to get together with two people, someone said yes. Oh, he said yes, yes. He said yes. Hope you didn't say that to your husband. So yes, hard to, marriage is difficult, right? When I do premarital counseling, I tell couples, look, you will never know how selfish you are until you get married. Happy marriage, you know. It's just like, but that is true, isn't it? Life is hard. Marriage is difficult. You have to walk into marriage knowing, you know what? I'm going to unite my life with someone else's life. This is going to be challenged because we are both natural-born sinners, and yet there's also hope in it. It means that a Christian home is not a perfect place. Christian marriage isn't a perfect place. And yet there is this sense of a ruining of relationships because of sin. Ruins our relationship with God, with people, and then here's the third one, even with society. Paul identifies that their feet are swift to shed blood. Murder, aggression, the shedding of blood, these are all related directly to the displaced spiritual condition of what it means to be under sin. We are prone to inflict pain on each other. And it's remarkable about how fast this can happen. He then says, in their path are ruin, in their paths are ruin and misery. It means that if you think of humanity in our wake, what we leave behind are ruined relationships and misery and difficulty. In other words, put enough people in the room together and there's going to be a level of conflict that is guaranteed. One of my favorite things to say with our staff is, yep, that sounds like church. And here's when I say that. When I hear about people who aren't getting along or fighting or an issue or things that are happening, people are, 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 are being catty with one another. I'm like, yep, that sounds like church. And, and I'm saying that not negatively or pessimistically, but yet that's what happens. When you get two or three people in a room or you get a hundred people or you get a small group together and people are telling each other what they really think, yep, that, that sounds like church. You're going to have challenges. You're going to have issues. And the church's role is to be a part of those issues because people are broken and the gospel is that which heals them. The way of peace they have not known. 
Hmm. This is the typical pattern of human history. More often than not, human history has been characterized by war, by conflict, by violence. In fact, the gravitational pull of our human culture is away from peace and it's toward conflict. It's happening right now in Crimea. The pull is towards conflict. What's going to happen? What's going on? What's going to take place? There's this, this, this regular pull. It's not just Crimea. It's the backseat of your minivan, right? You're heading home today and you have lines drawn. This is my side. This is your side. The stage is set for conflict. Don't come on my side. I'm coming on your side. I'm coming on your side. Your dad is like this in the back. You can't stop. Set for conflict. Why? Because we're all under sin. Just think how fast. I'm sure you've had this happen. We have. You're having a great, fun family moment. It feels like this is the best. Like you could hear Mayberry RFD in the background that's whistling. You know, you just have this image. And then it's just like World War III happening. And it could just, boom, change like that. You're having a great date with your, your spouse. You're out having just the greatest night. And one thing goes wrong. And you, the whole thing just gets flushed. Why is that? Because we're all under sin. And even after we come to faith in Christ, we still have this remnant of sinfulness that remains within us. See, if you can get this category in your head, it it changes your expectations of marriage, of family. And changing those expectations is really helpful when it comes to to what it means to be a good um, employee as a Christian in the marketplace, what it means to be a good single adult in the world. What it means to be a member of a church with broken people, it it changes your expectations. Look, I'm going to hang out with sinful, broken, fallen people who know the gospel, but at the end of the day, we're still broken and fallen people. And having that orientation really helps. One of my things I love to do in my spare time is some home improvement things and things like right now I'm working on a shelving unit next to our fireplace. And I've learned over the years that Whenever I do something that involves home improvement, I need to figure twice the amount of time, three times the amount of money, and just assume it's not going to go well. So I just, I just walk in going, this is going to be a great, really bad day. So I just walk in and think, I'm going to use my hands and tools, but it's not going to work. And so one of my sons the other day asked me if, as I was finishing up the project, he said, hey, Dave, how did it go today? I said, well, yeah, it went okay. He's like, did you run into problems? I'm like, oh, yeah, just expect problems. So I, I cut this board and... And I uh, went to a, a lumber yard to pick out this nice poplar piece I was going to stain. And, and when I gave him the measurements, I gave him the measurements thinking, that's not going to fit, though. I mean, I know it's not going to fit, right? So I he cut it out, and I, and, I, and I put it out, and it's like, and it fit. And I just stood back and going, wow, I, mean, I was so shocked because it actually fit, right? So my orientation when I'm dealing with this home improvement project is to realize, you know, it's probably not going to work the first, second, or third time. And the fact of the matter is we need to have the same orientation when it comes to relationships with people, with the reality of this sin in the world. Why is it that we think that life should be perfect and right and happy all the time when the fact of the matter is we live under sin? So if you drive from here to home and no one's wicked or sinful in the car and you have a great meal and take a nice nap, you'll be like, this is unusual and thank god for it because it's not normal now paul gives a summary and the summary is this our problem is that we don't fear god and there are no exceptions to that or his judgment look at verse 18 here's the summary there is no fear of god before their eyes 
It's a similar thing as to what Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 21, that they did not honor him as God. They exchanged the glory of God for the um, for images, the, the glory of the immortal God, rather, for images. The idea of fear is more than just being afraid of someone or something. It means a sense of understanding who God is. So what Paul is saying here is that at the root of who we are as human beings is a fundamental problem. It can be solved by the gospel, but the fundamental problem is not just the things that we do. The fundamental problem is who we are, that we don't just have a behavior problem, we don't just have a sin problem, we actually have a worship problem. We place our affections and our desires in the wrong things. We fear the wrong things instead of really fearing God. That's Paul's assessment of the condition of mankind. And then he talks about final judgment in verses 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The idea is that God has given the law into the world. He's given that law to the Jewish people. So that's who I think he's referring to. Speaks to those who are under the law, speaking to Jewish people. But the idea was that law was going to be broadcast to the world so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The idea is is that there's no single person who's ever going to be able to justify themselves in God's presence because their actions and their attitudes will create silence in the courtroom of heaven. The whole world will be held accountable. This means that there's coming a day when God will convincingly demonstrate His righteousness and will convincingly demonstrate our lack of righteousness. Just think of that. Apart from Christ, there will be no arguing with God. Who He is and who We are, in our sinfulness, the verdict will be clear and evident. There will be no arguing. And this final judgment will be based upon human actions that could never have created righteousness. That's what verse 20 is about. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the message is bleak. That being that human beings, by virtue of their law-keeping, cannot justify themselves because they continually fail. Now, at one level, that is really hopeless. And yet at another level, that's, that's an incredible truth. So, in my manuscript, it says this. Paul's message to the Jews and Gentiles is now complete. There is... And I forgot a word forgot the word no there is no so you need to add that in there there's no spiritual hope in yourself when i saw that last night i was like you goofball how could you forget no right and you know why this sermon is important when you forget the word no because at the end of the day it just well the the whole church is going to see that you're imperfect like they didn't know that before anyways and what you can do is embrace the fact that look Yes, I'm not a perfect person, but I know a Savior who is. And that orientation changes everything. It frees you to have a different perspective on life. 
It frees you to be able to live in a way that's gutsy in terms of dealing with people who are difficult and hard around you. So listen to me. There is a hope that is in the midst of hopelessness. So this text is is designed to bring you to a point where you just are like, I give up. And that's exactly where you need to be. Because the hope that's going to come is in verses 21 and 22 where it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, which means apart from your ability to do it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. That is a liberating truth. That my righteousness is not conditioned on my ability to nail it. That my righteousness is conditioned on Jesus' body being nailed to a tree. That's where my righteousness comes from. Therefore, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to believe in the King of kings and Lord of lords who was. You see, this is the hope of hopelessness. The first step that a person takes in becoming a follower of Jesus and becoming a Christian And maybe you're here today, you're trying to figure out the claims of Christ. The first step you take is this one, that you come to a point that you realize you can't do it anymore on your own. What do I mean it? I mean, you can't do anything. At the end of the day, you come to the crazy reality that God by His Spirit reveals to you that you are the problem. And when you come to that realization, it means that then you realize, I need someone else to save me because I can't save myself. And that person, according to the Bible, is Jesus, who then, by his death, gives you forgiveness, and by his life, gives you righteousness. Coming to faith means that you've walked away from trying to earn God's favor. But it doesn't stop there. Hmm. This equation of turning from trusting yourself to trusting Christ is then applied to every arena of life. And this is how the gospel just completely changes your life. It changes your life because when you look at your past and all the things that you'd love to erase and can't, And when you look at the things that you have done and you realize the kind of shame that you might feel, you would realize, you know what, those are the things that Jesus saved me from. My past? Yeah, it's filled with embarrassing things. You bet. My life is not based upon my past. It's based upon Jesus who forgave me of all of that. So it's not that you deny your past or rewrite your past. It's not that you sort of remanufacture what happened in the past. It's that you say, yeah, the past, yes. But Jesus saved me from my past. It means that the gospel transforms your relationships with friends and family members, children. It means parents that you see these these children that God's entrusted you with. As one person said, they're vipers in diapers. I mean, they're they are they, they are they are bent towards evil, and you have to pour grace into them. And you got to pour God's Word into them and get them around spiritual things. Because the orientation of their hearts is towards the wrong things all the time. And it means you come into relationships with other people. And there's something beautiful about knowing, you know what, I'm not perfect. And I'm going to blow it. But the reality is I know a Savior who's cleansed me. And He can help us to be reconciled together. 
It means that the church can be a place where people can, can, can be themselves and struggle and wrestle and fight through the deficiencies that are still latent within our humanity, but at the same time can pour all of those out at the feet of Jesus to say, you're the one that makes us unified, and you're the one who helps us to be whole. And you take Jesus into the context of your marriage, that on the, the anvil of, of self-centeredness and, and self-desire, God chastens and beats out the remaining elements of what we think we are. And He shows us by the most close and intimate relationships, you still need me. It means that when you look at the city of Indianapolis and the needs in our city, that you look at hard problems and challenging situations and there's something within your heart that just says, you know what, if the gospel could just come there, the gospel could just show up in that neighborhood. The gospel could come and change people's hearts. The, that entire block could be changed. For that matter, that entire neighborhood or that entire city or that entire nation or one day the world will be changed when Jesus is seated on the throne and rule and reign and the glory of God will cover the earth like the water covers the sea where the gospel has transformed everything and brought everything back to the way it was supposed to be. You see, the Bible starts by helping us to see that we are all under sin and then shows us that when you come to faith in Christ, you're now in Christ. And the change between the two is absolutely life-changing. Which is why the Apostle Paul contrasts the power of sin with the power of the gospel. So if you are weary about thinking about your past, if you're in the middle of a big conflict, having a hard time getting along with somebody, marriage that's in trouble, having a kid that you just can't get into their mind and heart, you got a, a wayward son or daughter that you want to come back, you got some kind of sin issue that you're trying to fight, all of those issues are all addressed in the gospel. Where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and here's why. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Meaning that the gospel is that which can transform everything because you've been brought out from under sin and put in Christ. And when that banner is over you, everything else in life suddenly is fundamentally different. And you now have a new power and a new authority and a new enabling to bring the very life, beauty, and power of Christ, the resurrected Christ, into relationships with people who are still beautiful, but they're broken, who are still in process, but still sinning. And you have the ability to bring the very power of God into those dynamics. Which is why Paul said it is the power of God. Father, thank you that you make it possible through Christ to be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I pray that today there might be some in this room or online who today would realize, God, I need to move from being under sin and being in Christ. And today, would you 
opened their eyes and in seeing that they might believe and in believing that they might have eternal life. And Father, help us who received Christ to live out this beautiful reality in our relationship with you, with one another, and in our culture. Give us eyes to see hard things and challenging people and just annoying relationship challenges and help us to see it through the power of God and not be so surprised when hard things come or conflict comes, but to leverage the hope of Christ in those. Forgive us for being so self-centered that we think we deserve an easy life with no problems and no issues and no conflicts. And Lord, help us today to be recommitted, renewed in this vision of living out the gospel in every arena of life. There are many people in this city, Lord, who are hopeless and lost and need this hope. So would you bring them into our realm of um, contact this week and help us when given opportunity to share boldly and compassionately the hope of the power of this gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's something going on in your life today that um, is a challenge or a burden that you're carrying, we don't want you to carry that alone. And there'll be some folks here afterwards who'd love to pray with you and invest in your life today. So please make uh, yourself available to them, okay? Hope to see you tonight at 6 o'clock. I love you, Couch Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.